0: Hello, cooperators. Welcome to Commons Place, your source for news, analysis, and voices from the cooperative economy in the United States.
1: There are 30,000 cooperatives in this country, and we're here to tell you about them. It's what the capitalists don't want you to know. I'm Liz Anderson with the United States Federation of Worker Cooperatives.
2: I'm Anna Martina from the United States Federation of Worker Cooperatives.
0: And I'm Dave Backer, professor of education at Westchester University.
3: In my 20s, which wasn't so long ago, I spent a lot of time calling Sally Mae and writing her letters asking if she would barter with me. I wanted to know if she would accept my skills instead of my money because I didn't have money. To those of you who don't know her, Sally Mae is this big white private student loan lender who takes advantage of 18 year olds. I graduated from college in 2008, the year of the global financial crisis, which meant I had skills but I didn't have money because people didn't get jobs that year and jobs give you money. People lost jobs. People lost houses. People lost cars. People lost health care. People lost their relationships. Here's an example of one of the letters I wrote to her. Dear Sally, I spoke with your colleague Betty on the phone roughly a week ago, and she told me the best way to get in touch with you is via hard mail. Betty and I discussed the prospects of working out a barter system with you in order to help me pay off my looming and suffocating student loan debt. What this would actually look like depends on what you and I decide after a casual meeting where we get to know one another and can openly express our individual needs. This could be something as simple as me providing homemade office lunches a couple of times a week and you lowering my overall balance by 20%. Certainly, what we actually agree to will vary from the example above, but our barter contract will naturally be refined after clear and honest communication. Lately, I've been thinking about the fantastical nature of money and debt. Both are age-old constructions that ascribe value to items we need or want. Is there a way to provide for one another where we each have the onus to ascribe personal value to items we need, want, give, or exchange? I'd love to join in on one of your open meetings to discuss new, yet old, ways of thinking about money, debt, contracts, and policy change. My very best, Meredith Dijansky. After years of talking with Sally and her workers, she never agreed to barter with me. And when I told people in my life that I was trying to get Sally to barter with me, people like my family and friends, they often responded with, there's no way she's going to barter with you. And that always pissed me off because it just isn't true. The only reason Sally didn't barter with me was because she had never thought of that as an option, and the whole institutional hierarchy of the place was so set in their capitalist ways that they couldn't see any alternative. Even Sally's workers, Jasmine, Betty, Rich, Tanu, thought this was a great idea, but had no clue how to talk to John Jack Ramondi, the white guy that ran the place. And they had no clue how I could access him either. I needed more people trying to barter with me, but I failed in organizing those people, and I even failed at convincing these millions of debtors that still exist that this could work. In this episode of Commons Place, we will hear stories of hardship and perseverance, delving into how part of a cooperative's work is to inform legislators about how cooperatives are different from capitalist businesses, and therefore they need different rules. It may just be that these large entities run by a couple of people at the top don't have the capacity to imagine other ways of living and existing that are outside the norm. But it's not impossible. Today, right now, while listening, you will hear stories of cooperatives that are coming together to fight for the rules to be changed. Some of them are winning, some of them will soon, and some of them won a long, long time ago. This is Meredith Dijansky, the Commons Place Philadelphia correspondent. Enjoy.
0: News from the cooperative economy.
2: I'm Shelley Ronan with the Commons Place News Roundup. After a year of contentious debate, the city council of Boulder, Colorado has finally passed an ordinance on housing co-ops The ordinance will allow for 10 new co-ops each year in addition to increasing occupancy limits. Dave Backer will have more on this story in the following segment. Moving from housing to the agricultural sector, Three farming co-ops in Minnesota are set to vote on a merger. The members of Central Farm Service, the River Region Cooperative, and South Central Grain and Energy will be deciding whether or not to merge into a single cooperative with over $1 billion in combined annual sales. The merger comes as a response to the economic challenges such as the collapse in global agricultural prices, market volatility, and tighter regulation. In Hawaii, the threat of a merger between two major power companies has spurred the growth of the Hawaii Island Energy Cooperative. The Energy Cooperative has just been approved for non-profit status and is now well positioned to confront the rate hikes of Hawaiian Electric Industries, the main energy supplier for Hawaii. This new energy cooperative for Hawaii's Big Island follows in the footsteps of the Kauai Island Utility Cooperative, which already handles 5% of the state's load. While the Hawaii Island Energy Cooperative may have a competitive edge thanks to prioritizing customers over profit, the Black Star Co op in Austin, Texas is struggling financially due in part to its own ethical priorities. Black Star has billed itself as the world's first cooperatively owned and worker managed brew pub. However, it is now facing slack sales and may have to close its doors. While increased local competition is the direct cause of this financial crisis, Blackstar's emphasis on paying fair wages and providing good benefits seems to be a complicating factor. A call for help to its 3,500 member owners has managed to boost sales for the time being. Meanwhile, the president of the National Association of Federal Credit Unions has written a letter to the leaders of the new Congress. In the letter, President Dan Berger warns against removing tax exemption for credit unions. He writes that the elimination of tax exemption would lead to the loss of 150,000 jobs per year, a shrinking of the GDP and a net loss of revenue for the federal government. In global news, the cooperative newspaper Efimerida Tonsintakton, or Efsin, now has the second highest sales for daily evening newspapers in Greece. Efsin was founded as a way to maintain independence from political parties, business interests, and existing media outlets. Besides comprehensive news on common topics such as politics, culture, and sports, Efsin also includes a section dedicated to the social and solidarity economy. For hourly news updates on the cooperative economy, go to commonsplace.org or check the Commons Place Twitter feed at commons underscore place.
0: Thanks, Shelley. The City Council of Boulder, Colorado led a year-long debate on the legal status of cooperative housing at the end of last year. The number of cooperatives in Boulder is sort of low, actually, relative to other forms of housing, but the ordinance, which raises occupancy limits in cooperative housing and brings cooperative houses into the legal light of day in the city, caused a pretty big stir. The ordinance language was rewritten four times, and there were as many public meetings to deliberate it. The last hearing on this ordinance on January 3rd was three hours long. After speaking with folks on both sides of the issue over the phone, I came to a recording of this last meeting, where the council heard from nearly 90 residents, both for and against the ordinance. The testimonies from these residents are passionate, powerful, and insightful. In them, there's poetry, polemic, radical politics, bureaucratic legalese, and, in every case, real commitment to community. And at one point, someone even throws a fruitcake. In these testimonies, we can hear the beautiful difficulty of living cooperatively. And what that means for both cooperators and non cooperators across race, class, gender, sexuality, and age. So, what follows is a collage of nearly 20 of these testimonies. Each side of the debate gets a turn during the collage. Uh, Co op advocates are followed by residents who oppose the ordinance, and I don't interrupt them with narration. Some notes on the collage each resident is addressing the city council at a lectern when they speak. The council members sit at a table that's shaped like a half circle, raised slightly above the ground, while a large crowd sits facing the city council. I've kept the voices anonymous, removing the moments when each person says their names and addresses, which they do as a formality in the deliberation, but you might recognize Nathan Schneider, uh, the journalist and cooperative activist who happens to be living in Boulder and spoke in favor of the ordinance near the end of the recording. The collage starts with a city council member talking about the process they use to approach the debate, and then ends with the moment of voting itself. You could hear typing noises during this recording from the council's uh, official transcriber, and you might hear a sound, uh, a tone, that rings when each speaker's time is up. And just as a warning, there is some profane language late in the recording.
4: um this process I think was a little bit of an experiment we set out at, at our retreat almost exactly a year ago um, in last January to to try this because I think there was an appetite to um, to tackle co-op housing as Zen said this has been on the plate for a long long time for this council for, for councils. And uh, uh, Jane said, well, we don't have the staff time to do it the usual way where we throw a whole lot of people at it and hire some consultants and so on and so forth. And so I think we all said, well, we'll roll up our sleeves.
5: We live in a single-family home, but uh, I was uh, one of the co-founders of the Masala Co-op, which is one of the permanently affordable co-ops here in Boulder, and, you know, we founded it back in 99, 2000, back then, and since then, the equity's been used to generate a second co-op and a third co-op, and now affordable housing is being provided for, like, 50 people when we started with 12. And just a couple of the points that I wanted to sort of impress upon you, because I've been involved in this for a long time, you know, dating back to that in Boulder, and then I'm currently on a national co-op development board where we help co-op developers in different cities, uh, particularly with financing and zoning issues, um, that it's very hard to, well, one of the things I think it's easy to agree on is co-op housing is more affordable housing. So. uh, as a national average, it's about 35% more affordable than a similar room would be in a non-co-op environment or housing unit. Um, and in order to provide that affordable housing, it's very difficult to mesh the financing that you need. So when we did the Masala development, we had to find three different lenders. We had to set it up with a balloon loan that you know came due in two years, and we needed – you know, public funding to make the co-op sustainable. And so that's part of the reason that the occupancy is so important, is to make it affordable and to be able to get the financing because the the financiers that will fund co-ops actually charge higher interest rates than, like, a single-family homeowner would pay. And so, you know, that's part of the cost pressure on developing a co-op and that I wanted to you know make you guys aware because that's very important in terms of making co-ops happen here in boulder because co-op development in boulder has been very slow partly because we never were able to use the co-op housing ordinance back in even in 99.
6: last time i stood here i said i was astonished that you would pursue a policy that will strip more single-family homes from the market reward investors, and do nothing to produce the affordable housing so needed by working families. Nothing in this latest latest draft has reduced that disbelief. It's also clear that you have little concern for those who have worked hard to buy a home here, trusting that their intentional community, one built around low-density housing, would be protected by established zoning regulations. But since you're going to force up-zoning into neighborhoods, I propose you consider the following. One, limit the permitted occupants in low density to six unrelated people. Establish rent caps on rental co-ops if you are serious about affordability. And recuse yourself from voting if you own rental properties. Before approving this ordinance, build a transparent online system accessible to the public. This system would identify each approved co-op, type, property owner, person to contact, and license plates of cars registered for that co-op. It will also list infractions and date of resolution. Such a system might convince citizens that you will actually enforce a housing ordinance. Also, if you're entirely convinced that this ordinance will increase affordability and be a positive addition to all neighborhoods, then run this as a pilot program for two years. During that time, real-time statistics and studies can run that can verify or disprove council's belief. A pilot program would go far to show that facts, not special interests or emotions, drive policy here. Thank you.
7: How, um, how much friends I have there. Most of them are older but some of them are my age. <laughs>
8: Thank you, Reese. Okay. The legislation has been constructed in an ad hoc manner with little or no analysis of its key features. Mayor Jones has stated that a key rationale for this statute were survey results that indicated that the affordability of Boulder is a key concern to most citizens. Well, of course it is. But has there ever been a survey question asking whether the respondents would support overoccupied residences of 12 to 15 people next door to them as the solution to the affordability problem? If so, what were the results? Mayor Jones has also dismissed the concern that co-ops can have a, ne- can have a negative impact on the property values of adjoining homes, stating that real estate in Boulder only goes up. Is this what passes for policy analysis in Boulder? And would the council support a home repurchase program for the properties adjacent to co-ops if the claim proves false? Third, finally, other than the desire of co-op groups to have cheaper rent, what's the basis for the contention that you need 12 to 15 people to properly sustain and operate a co-op? We expect our legislators to act with reason, care, and the support of evidence. This ordinance appears to be little more than the product of intense lobbying, and a council that has bought in without real consideration of the impacts of their actions. You're going to proceed because you believe that the people who are so upset at this ordinance do not know what is best for them as you do. Imposing this ordinance on unwilling low-density neighborhoods is an act of legislative arrogance and should be reconsidered. Thank you. I
1: recently gave birth
7: and I didn't have a really good housing situation. I got taken in by Chrysalis. I feel so supported by them. When I moved in, they asked me at an interviewing meeting whether or not they could could adjust times that people were allowed to do laundry so that the baby wasn't woken. This place would not be Boulder being my home having lived here since i was five would not be accessible to me if it wasn't for co-op if we have restrictions on how many people can live in them my daughter would set us over that limit you know like we're just there and she would be out (laughs) so in that i would say please consider the value of co-ops thank you
9: Indeed, in my 20s, I lived in a house with 12 other people, which was a a de facto co-op. I have no problems with co-ops. I do have a problem with the very localised high density that could result from the versions of the ordinance that we have been discussing uh, so far. My story is very normal in the neighbourhoods. When we bought our house, it felt very, very expensive. Boulder seems to always have been very expensive, at least for people of my age, it probably always will be very expensive unless something changes to make it less appealing to people. I don't believe the co-op ordinance will do anything greatly significant to affect affordability. The numbers just aren't large enough to justify that. What is upsetting, I believe, people in the neighbourhoods is that we make an intentional decision to invest our, our futures basically our financial futures, into a single-family, low-density neighbourhood. Now, we can't guarantee that there won't be an asteroid strike or massive political upheaval across the whole country, but we don't think we're likely to see an oil rig in our neighbourhood, and we don't think we're likely to see it rezoned to be commercial or high-density. And if we have a rental property with 12 people in it, co-op or not, it does feel like it's both high-density and commercial. That's how it feels. It feels like a zoning change snuck in the back door, and it's a scary feeling. Thanks very much.
7: Um, Put in my support in favour of the ordinance language as is. Um, We have 15 people, it's 14 adults and one toddler, Um, so I would just like to read a short thing called um, We Want to Live. This morning, as I watched the snow fall, the red wings of a bird flew by. I love living in this beautiful state, my home, where I can see the sky. But these city rentals are sky high. So we build communities that are sustainable, grounded in honor and respect. We work together with budgets that are obtainable and all the love and support one can get i have found a safe space where i can find my voice to speak up for people like me artists engineers organizers creators visionaries believers in diversity people who want a choice to live in harmony with all beings in the universe thank you
10: thank you so much thanks for your time council appreciate it uh, looking for solutions Council. looking for solutions i have a couple ideas for middle way I don't oppose co-ops, I just uh, look for appropriate co-ops in appropriate places. I'd like to add to council member Burton's thoughts on council making adjustments as necessary any anytime during the year if the ordinance goes south. Council can also make adjustments anytime during the year if the ordinance works well and we can make improvements on it too. So there's a positive and negative spin to that. To that end, I'd encourage the support of the limits of six, 12 and 15, low, medium and high density. 15 is uh, it's fine. Six gives the low-density homeowners a chance to see how it goes. We can adjust it up as time goes on as we learn through the uh, through the process. I'd also suggest adding a council intent to the ordinance, uh, and it reads something like this: Council intends that co-ops and immediate neighbors meet at least quarterly to resolve any issues or complaints. That allows the co-op process that happens internally to the co-op houses to happen with immediate neighbors and see if we can get good neighbors going again co-op, council intends that co-ops and immediate neighbors meet at least quarterly to resolve any issues or complaints then if it goes to the city the first thing the city asks is have you met with your co-op or the co-op have you met with your other folks i support lot size changes uh, adjusting the the lot sizes I'd add that the ordinance uh, the is written, says 7,000 feet or above. You can add one. I think it should read 8,000 feet or above. You can add a person, 7,000 below. You subtract a person. I live on 4,800 square feet, six feet away from my nearest neighbor. That would be really important for me. Uh, I'm looking for the middle way. Again, it's 250 feet. Uh, Square feet per person in low density, 200 in uh, medium and high. We can change that at any time. Thank you so much for your time.
11: City, which excludes low-income families and families of color. As you can imagine, there aren't many businesses and organizations in Boulder that are safe for and designed to serve a person of color like me. However, the cooperative organizations in Boulder consist of profoundly kind-hearted and socially and environmentally dedicated residents. They are active workers in creating environmental and social improvement in our city of Boulder. It is immature and irresponsible to persecute Black, Latinx, Asian, Native, and Middle Eastern families and low-income, impoverished families who are valuable contributing members of this city by restricting and denying our access to much needed resources i know that for you all the as intelligent and experienced leaders pretending that white rich and middle-class residents are the only ones who exist or matter is beneath you facing immense racism and classism in boulder cooperative organizations have been the one place where i felt like i there are actually people who care about me In addition, Boulder prides itself on being environmentally, socially, and economically progressive. Every single resident of every cooperative organization in Boulder is a leader environmentally and in social work. We want to support these leaders in their unparalleled dedication to environmental sustainability. The leaders that make up cooperative organizations have given decades of their livelihood toward environmental work. That is why it is imperative to keep the cap at or above 12 to 15 in support of our city's leaders. It is our right and your responsibility to increase affordable housing Accessibility to populations of hundreds of thousands, low-income residents, and residents of color in Boulder. To decrease accessibility would be to continue a legacy of oppression and equality, segregation, and white supremacy. Rather, it is important to support our city's leaders and cooperative organizations in Boulder to make Boulder City rank amongst the best nationwide, economically, socially, and environmentally. Thank you.
4: For sitting through this show and tell that has been presented so far, very well organized. Um I want to present a different view. Um I've heard people say that the opposition to co-ops is based on fear and people just don't know what co-ops really are. I had a co-op next to me for four years. I beg to differ. It's not something you want next door to you. Um I'll say again that I do oppose the idea of rental co-ops in low density neighborhoods, but I understand you're gonna push that through anyway. So I do have a few suggestions to make this thing a little bit less bad for the people who live in those neighborhoods. Um, one, start with a lower number for occupancy caps. I think six would be the right number. Maybe eight would be okay. Twelve is ridiculous. Um, please remember that the actual occupancy of a co-op will generally be much more than the number of claimed residents due to guests and couch surfers, etc. cetera. Um, And, yeah, I've seen the reports that uh, everybody presented here about why they need 12 people. Um, I would just hope that the city would conduct some independent research on that. Um, You know, accepting a report from Zane Selvins on the economics of co-ops is a lot like accepting a report from ExxonMobil about the effects of coal on climate change. Uh, Two, don't back down on the 2,000-square-foot minimum house size and the five-year embargo on modifications. I think that's a good idea. Um, three, limit the number of co-ops per neighborhood to no more than one per year. Um, use neighborhood definitions or a, a square grid or whatever, something to spread them out over city instead of having them all end up next to the campus. Um, and finally, please keep the 250 square foot minimum space requirement, the 500 foot separation requirement, and the sleeping plan requirement, I think that will help <coughs> regulate things. Um, and-
12: Association, Plan Boulder and all the neighborhood character, quality of life perfectionist, protectionist. More concerned with the status quo that is their RL1 privilege status than building a diverse and vibrant boulder. This is for all the equity millionaire ersatz liberal nimby hypocrites protesting co-ops from the sustainably harvested hardwood porches of their McMansions opposing people who want to live cooperatively, as in collegially, symbiotically, collectively, interdependently, harmoniously, as a community, say. And this is for every my third car is a Prius environmentalist. With two or three bedrooms, granite countertops, and a Viking stove, a landscaper, and a housekeeping and a housekeeper that incommute an Espanol from one of the L's or beyond, maybe one of the token affordable ghettos we've created, one of the mobile home parks we've so generously, so graciously preserved to assuage our guilt, point out to others that we care. Just got back from your cabin in the mountains to pipe up about being misunderstood. The ones clinging to their manifest suburbia, anachrist- anachronistic worldview, as vociferously as Jefferson Davis cleaved to his anti-bellum lineage and a rebel flag. We know you, and we're tired of you. You're, of course, I support affordable housing, just not this one project here. Why here and why now? Your intellectualized tolerance that fails to account for anything slightly different than yourself, that kind of self. 25 fucking years I've been here, Talk, talk, talk,
13: talk, talk. Well, there seems to be a, a big gap between the neighborhoods and uh, the, the fine uh, folks uh, from the co op community. I I think there are some things that can be worked out tonight. I've uh, hiked with Zane. He's had me over for beers at his co-op. Very kind of him. I participated in a facilitated meeting with Christine and Stephen uh, about a month ago looking for solutions as well. And I get their point. They want to live in community. They want to live cheaply and have certainty. Neighborhoods, I spent, I bought my house in 2003. I spent three months looking for a quiet, low density neighborhood. I haven't got a family so for me it was all about just open spaces, being near to a park. And I worked really hard and looked really hard for that house and found one. So I I would be my dream would be shattered if uh, Zane uh, bought the house next to me, and, and moved in 12 to 15 people. I think a great solution is amnesty for existing co-ops, a temporary license in low density, and then a pilot program for new co-ops in medium and high density. That would be a great tier solution that could bring neighborhoods together with the co-op community, and we could work out the issues and bring a positive resolution to tonight. Also, there's 2,000 homes on the market – or sorry, not on the market, but available in medium and high-density areas, so 2,000 properties that could be used for new co-ops, and uh, that would be a great starting point. I also want to mention – Uh, that um, uh, low density housing is actually much better for boulder's clean energy plan Uh, two or three people in a house can generate enough solar to power their vehicles and be a net zero house whereas that's not possible with a densely populated house thank you very much
14: because her client that she was working in hospice care died and she couldn't afford to keep it. The second time when her mental health failed and I was put in adoption. The third time when I had to leave after being abused. And the, and the fourth time is potential with the ordinances if they're restrictive and do not allow for 12 to 15 people to be allowed to live together that aren't related. And 200 people. To, and 200 square feet to be shared for people. I... I want you to realize that when you're creating this ordinance, especially to the people who are opposing it right now, that you are marginalizing people who already hold marginalized identities. Already, there's been t- there's been talk by many people here talking about um, classism and white supremacy in the city. This also impacts ableism and transphobia, and that making co-ops not exist is an act against people who have marginalized identities in the city of Boulder, a city that is already unwelcoming of already unmarginalized people, myself included as a transgender woman. I work at a shelter for survivors of domestic violence who have lost their homes due to being abused who are often recognized and told that their experiences of violence are not real. I live with people who are survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. I live with people who have experienced such intense physical abuse in their <laughs> And I want you to know that these are the people that you would be evicting. I myself live at the Radish, in a, a co-op that has 12 people that needs that ordinance of 200 square feet to continue to exist. And so when you put that ordinance down and you decide that you do not want co-ops to exist in the city, as you do, you are threatening not only myself, but people I choose as my family and my friends. Thank you.
15: It's the limit of three people, and that's largely due to the university. I don't have nearly enough time to say all the issues here, but there's—I've been. My dad took me to plan builder meetings first. I totally accept and believe what plan builders talking about. How this is a whole different issue—that it's really a way to densify all of Boulder, the way that the efficiencies and all of the density that's going on here has. It's really hard for me now because I love co-housing and and communal housing, but I have to speak out against it and that's really hard because I think it's a way to get under the camel under the tip of density in Boulder, and these meetings going in till two in the morning. (laughs) I think that if you could have them in some, like around Matt's house, around places where there's bigger lots, that might be better as a start.
16: because I have extensive experience with the collective living. My wife and I and our children lived for 25 years in a collective in North Boulder. We called ourselves a Juniper Street uh, Collective. The nature of the collective was that we ate together, we shared uh, child care, we shared resources, we shared a certain degree of our, uh, a certain uh, uh, amount of our uh, income, and I think it was an extremely positive experience for everyone involved. Uh, It's one thing. um, Among the many benefits of our collective was it enabled all adults in the collective to have a... uh, successful and satisfying career. We develop warm relationships among all the children who treat each other as siblings, whether or not they're biologically related or not. And if you'll excuse a bit of bragging, every single kid raised in the collective is doing successful and highly uh, valuable social work today. The uh, collective also uh, broke down the, ge- the gender divisions of labor. I, uh, for example, learned to cook, learned to take care of babies, learned to iron shirts and uh, blouses, uh, learned to garden uh, vegetables. Uh, we also we also um, uh, learned how to resolve conflict and how to um, uh, and how to make collective decisions, which were valuable in many many realms of our lives. I, i'd like to make three uh, concluding point points first of all forming effective collectives is very difficult make it as easy as possible and as few restrictions
15: as possible if you want them to be successful thank you
11: and i've been to some of the co-ops and i think they have a place but i think to overrun the city In low-density neighborhoods, is just ridiculous. I think that they have to. You have to do it in moderation. And whether you do a pilot program or what you do, but to just keep increasing is ridiculous. That um, because of the apartments in my neighborhood, I constantly have cars in front of my house. And I know they say they're going to have less cars, but there's always. You know, when you have that many people, there's always going to be cars. And I just want to. Uh, say that I think in low-density neighborhoods away from the city, that it just doesn't make sense. Thank you.
17: Uh, my wife and one-year-old child would love to have the opportunity to consider living in a co-op in Boulder. Um, but nevertheless, um, I think it's important to recognize that we're being watched. When I was at the International Summit of Cooperatives in Quebec last October, um, people knew about what's going on here. People from all around the world uh, are watching what's happening here. And when I told them about the current state of the ordinance, they were actually shocked uh, by how restrictive it is. this is a model housing cooperation that has operated successfully in places all over the world uh, for hundreds of years in various forms. Um, and it's also really important to recognize the ways in which they regulate themselves. When people are calling for simplicity here in terms of the regulations that you propose, you have to keep in mind that the, that the principles of, of economic cooperation have self-regulation built in. That's why the cooperative that brought electricity to my grandfather's, uh, the farm where my grandfather was born north of Johnstown, uh, 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 the electric cooperative, is much less regulated than investor-owned electric utilities, because there's a recognition, a recognition that's been longstanding for decades in this country, that cooperative businesses can regulate themselves. And part of that regulation is the principle of concern for community. I would like to say that this is an opportunity for Boulder to take a leadership role in inclusive um, uh, development, uh, uh, but this is really something that is already happening around the world. It's just up to us to join.
7: from the uh, co-op members I heard also that they want to be good neighbors but instead I hear uh, no desire to compromise it has to be 12 or 15 no understanding for neighbors I might be their neighbor with my children and no understanding for why we might object Essentially, there's, uh, there's two parallel languages going on here. One language is the language of planning, of design, of all these beautiful maps, of all the money that gets spent on our planning department and staff, of all the little nitpicking regulations that Boulder has. And then we have the language of hurt, of pain, of everything else. It seems to me you're listening to this incredibly emotional language And that language has its place, but occupancy laws need to be looked at as occupancy laws, nothing to do with co-ops. How many people should live in the house next door to me? That's all. It should be, from the ground up, a look at the infrastructure, at the, the way the house was designed, at the parking, anything to do with the environment, anything to do with sustainability. It could be anybody living next door to me. It does. Uh, it's not a co-op issue. And yet we're just sitting here talking. We have this huge, huge turnout from co-ops. And this is really an issue that should start at the planning level. And my prediction is there will be strife, there will be anger, there will be informing. This is not going to end well with a lack of compromise.
11: I support co-ops in honor of time. That's all I'm going to say, but it is National Fruitcake Toss Day. Let's make it happen
7: yeah. Okay. Okay, then. Um, we ready to vote?
16: We just do a handful. Okay.
15: All those in favor of
3: I went to Germantown last Sunday to buy a Dustbuster off Craigslist. We just got a cat named Charlie and needed to figure out how to get her hair off the carpet. I mean, actually, it's a rug, it's not a carpet. The rug was given to us by a friend. She was allergic to it, so couldn't have it in her house anymore. Her is the cat named Charlie. The other she, the she, I mean the only she, is Michelle. And the we I keep talking about is me and my partner, Nyssa. After getting the Dustbuster and making friends with the Dustbuster's previous owners, Hannah and Brett, gosh, Craigslist is so cool in that way. You you meet all sorts of people on Craigslist. Even though you don't actually hang out with them again, you think that you might, which makes the whole experience, like, really exciting. Um, At any rate, we stopped in at the Weaver's Way co-op in Mount Airy. We wanted to make rice pudding that night, so we needed to pick up some vanilla and some milk. We also needed toilet paper. Not for the rice pudding, just because we needed it. Just... Vanilla? Here's
9: a super nice
3: smell, but it's a good one for It So is
9: nice. It's nice. Just...
3: Not a last of Should we get the little one that's like, seems like it's not pure? It says used use just doesn't work. I recorded as shopping there because I like the sounds. I like how the upstairs is quiet and the downstairs is loud. This is Meredith Dijansky, the Commons Place Philadelphia correspondent. Thanks for listening.
0: Two hours southwest of Minneapolis in Minnesota is the Goodall store, officially called the Nelson Albin. Cooperative and Mercantile Association. The cooperative store was built in 1894 with its bylaws written in Norwegian. It was the oldest consumer cooperative general store uh, still operating in Minnesota and the third oldest cooperative general store in the United States. Uh, The Gadal store, as it's known, closed its doors last month. And I spoke with Carly Olson, whose father sat on the board of the store uh, about what the store meant to her, why it closed. Uh, So let's go to that interview. Could you tell the, just tell the story of the store and how it opened up?
18: Um, it was formed as a cooperative by farmers, um, as I said, to to make sure that there was an area where they didn't have to travel quite so far to um, obtain the product that they need um, for their homes and families and farms. Um, and then over time, the, um, you know, the, the clientele has changed. The Gordo community itself, had, you know, at one point had two gas stations and um, there were a couple of different enterprises that, that went along with the store, um, but it's always been the, the true general store. And it's really, I think, been what kept the store alive in that community. The services provided through the store um, were, you know, in, a long time ago, they were, Basically, any supply you needed, any kind of grocery, any kind of household supply, any kind of um, item that you needed for your farm—be it you know nuts and bolts to um, you know things that that anybody needed—because you had to travel such a distance distance to get to the next community, and so it was the store for everything. It was basically an old-fashioned general store. Um, over time, it has it has retained that general store um, concept, but but the product they carry has diminished, um, simply just because you know some of the um, fresh produce things like that they, that don't have a long shelf life. Um, the volume wasn't enough to to warrant. Um, Maintaining it, so the, the you know expansive product has declined. Um, it's built then a grocery store and household supply store for many years, and um, in, in the last ten to fifteen years, the the profit in that that store functionality has really not been there. So um, it's been kind of subsidized by local fundraising and what would be like a pork chop dinner or a tour of homes or uh, bake sales or craft sales or things like that, um, the, there's been fundraising to kind of subsidize the, the operation of the store. And uh, we kind of come to the realization, again, that the the functionality of the store itself um, just can't be sustained.
0: Was the process like for coming to that decision? Is there a, a kind of meeting of the membership?
18: Um, yeah, there there are five board members um, that have, and the board members have changed over time. But there are five board members who um, meet regularly to to govern the decisions for the cooperative and for the store. And um, as finances have continued to dwindle, Um, there have been discussions a number of times about is it time to close the store? Um, Over the past year and a half, they've experimented with reduction of hours or, you know, different hours on different days. Um, They've actually had some volunteer help working at the store. Um, They tried a few different things to try to um, just preserve the cash flow that they have. Uh, But the cash available to run the store is really what's forced their hand
0: here i see and and the forces that were at work to reduce that cash flow involved like competition from other distributors or it was uh it was just a, a A a dwindling population or
18: a little of both um there used to be you know small family farms every mile or so and now um you know, the, the farming economy is such that there are bigger farms and more spread out and, and travel to town is, is a normal thing. So um, there just aren't as many rural families to begin with. And then um, anybody, even if you are a rural family, still has connection to town for work. And the store couldn't provide all of the grocery and household needs that anybody has. So you're stopping in another store anyway. It was it became more of an extra trip to stop at the Goldall store than for it to be your destination. And so um, the, the volume that was purchased obviously went down, um, and, you know, the population in the area is declining as well, and then the population that is there is aging, and the quantity of meat that they have uh, just relaxed.
1: are not often considered when legislation is drafted and passed. It is not always with malicious intent, but because of the different nature of cooperatives, laws that intend to help workers can hurt workers. The California legislature passed AB 2883 in 2016, making changes to workers' compensation law. Previously, worker compensation law did not require managing owners of businesses to purchase it. Now, worker owners are required to purchase it. As a result, cooperatives will have to cut worker pay and benefits. This requirement is still true for LLCs and partnerships, but AB 2883 changed the rule for corporations, requiring that the owner hold at least 15% of the shares in order to waive workers' compensation coverage. Before this law was put into place, worker co-ops could choose whether to fund workers' compensations insurance or towards funding health insurance or higher wages. Luckily, action is being taken. Worker owners and a handful of cooperatives, including the Cheeseboard Collective, Three Stone Hearth, Home Green Home, Drought Smart, Ayers Mendy Bakery, and Echo Adventures Team have convened to form a campaign working group to change the law. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be interviewing some folks from the Sustainable Economies Law Center and the coalition of cooperatives that are working to change this law.
0: That does it for today's episode. Thanks to Meredith Dijansky, Shelley Ronan, Alex Breeden, Liz Anderson, Anna Martina Riva, and Steve Pomerantz, Megan Gross, and Carly Olson for our stories. And remember, friends, another world is actual. We'll see you next time.